Thank you for being with us. I'm sure that you're probably about as saturated as I am at this point, so I appreciate you, you know, being here for this conversation today. Uh, my name is Christine Hutchison-Jones, and I'm the chair of the new Applied Religious Studies Committee here at the AAR. Um, essentially, what we're looking to do is get a conversation started uh, that will hopefully lead us to building out resources that will support scholars of religion and theology who are interested in exploring or pursuing careers um, off of the traditional tenure track. And our group today is uh, faculty members who have agreed to join us to have a conversation about some of these issues and particularly um, what they're doing as they encounter students who are starting to ask questions about what else might I do with my graduate degree in religion. Um, just a little background on me. I have a PhD in religious studies from Boston University where I did American religious history. And um, I worked as an administrator in my department for eight years while I was pursuing my PhD. Uh, so I graduated with a very, uh, I, I had a nice resume of administrative work and a strong sense of how the kind of work I had been doing could actually be intellectual work and supporting education without being in the classroom. I also had a very strong sense that um, departmental politics uh, do not look like what you think academic departments look like when you first start grad school um, and had decided that was really not the direction I wanted to go. So I immediately headed into administrative career. I'm now the administrative director of a research center at Harvard Law School that does health law policy and bioethics. So um, not directly related to my research, but it's amazing the ways in which I get to sneak it in. So I'll briefly introduce our panelists, and then I want to jump right into conversation with you guys. And I'd also like you to each take a moment to sort of introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about why you were willing to join us to have this conversation today. Um, so immediately to my left is Molly Bassett, who's Associate Professor and Chair of Religious Studies at Georgia State University. And I just want to note that um, GSU has actually started a graduate concentration in nonprofit management in their Religious Studies department. So this is a terminal master's that's focused on preparing students for something other than the academy. Uh, Jason Bivens, down on the end, is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at NC State University. Um, I graduated from Florida State, but since uh, NC State was never much competition when I was oh, an undergrad, I won't hold it against <laughs> you. Um, I would also like to note, because I'm intrigued, that Jason says on his website he's a musician in the style of non-idiomatic free improvisation. That's true or more sloppily, free jazz. Apparently free jazz is not a thing we're supposed to say. Just not about me. Oh, okay. <laughs> and finally, heroically at center <laughs> is Kathleen Moore, who um, I want to give special thanks to for joining us in spite of breaking her arm yesterday. So give her lots of love today. Um, Kathy is actually on the new Applied Religious Study, Studies Committee with us to help bring a faculty perspective to our conversations both about uh, what students need and what faculty need, because this conversation needs to talk about what resources we can be providing to faculty as well. Um, Kathy is the uh, chair of the Department of Religious Studies and interim director of the CAPS Center for the Study of Religion, Ethics, and Public Life at UC Santa Barbara. And uh, they have just reactivated a terminal master's in the Department of Religious Studies there that is intended for those who do not want to pursue the PhD um, either with the intention of teaching at a junior college level, as I understand it, or uh, pursuing careers outside of the academy. 
So those are our panelists, and I will let you take it away with a fuller introduction of yourselves and your interest in this topic. Um, so I'm an associate professor. I finished my PhD at Santa Barbara in 2009 and was tenured in 2015 at Georgia State. Um, the year after I started at Georgia State, I stepped in as our graduate director. So I did that job for seven years before stepping in as chair this July. Um, so and the question for the panel is, what do you do as faculty? And I've done some things as a faculty member, but I've done a lot of things as an administrator, uh, first low level and now slightly higher, but still pretty low level. Um, in addition to those things, I'm also in the teaching religion unit for the AAR and the editorial board of teaching theology and religion. So I have my um, fingers in those pies. Um, Georgia State University is in downtown Atlanta. So if you've been to the AAR in Atlanta, all of those conference hotels are on Peachtree Street and it turns a corner and that's Georgia State. So I can throw a rock from my office and hit a conference hotel. Um, so when I think about the things we're doing at Georgia State, I think about our location. So we're in the capital of Atlanta. We're blocks from the King Center. I pass it uh, on my commute home. Um, the CDC is in town. So there are lots of reasons. Um, the things we're doing at Georgia State are particular, I think, to our institution. And so that's one thing I would flag uh, for our conversation today is how we think about what we can do in our institutional contexts. Um, so we have an undergraduate major and an MA program. And for years, that was a thesis track and a non-thesis track, which we then came to call our coursework intensive track, because that's really what it is. Um, three years ago, we added, in conjunction with the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, their certificate to our coursework intensive track. So we negotiated with them some elective exchanges so that students who are in that program do about a year of coursework with us and about a year of coursework in nonprofit management, do an internship, and really have the credentials to work in nonprofits. And the idea for that program came out of witnessing our graduate students leave with a traditional MA and then go into nonprofit work. And research that the Teagle Foundation has supported also shows that 7 to 8% of religion majors go into nonprofit work. So it's not just us, um, but we felt like that would be a strong first step for us in thinking outside uh, traditional preparation for continuing in academia or education. Um, the other thing I'll mention today that is on the slate to start up maybe next fall is a certificate with our School of Public Health. So that's our next move. And um, we're making that move in part because Wellstar, which is a unit that owns hospitals in Atlanta, we have a, an alum that is their chief ethics officer. And because of Jason, we put together a fellowship package with Wellstar. So now every year we uh, admit one person who is a Wellstar fellow, and they work with Jason in our nonprofit track to get uh, experience in the medical profession, specifically ethics, and while they earn their degree. Um, so we're moving the public health piece in so that those fellows have the option of nonprofit management or public health, and also then with an eye to replicating this kind of fellowship with other hospitals in the city or other health professionals or other industry partners, um, stakeholders, to use the lingo of uh, 
the university and working with people outside the university. Um, so that's a bit about my context, and I'll let someone else talk. Uh, well, I'm Kathy Moore, and I'm at UCSB, as uh, Chrissy mentioned, and I'm sorry I never had the chance to meet Molly, because when she finished was when I was joining the department, mm -hmm. so I'm glad to have this opportunity. Um, I wanted just to start out by saying a little something about my own path, and I'm grateful that the AAR has posted the uh, banners around here saying things like uh, tenure track is not the norm because uh, I think that messaging is a big thing that's going to help uh, open the eyes and ears of faculty to hear about um, going, you know, directions for the future. Um, myself, I actually don't even have a PhD in religion. Um, why I'm in the post that I'm in, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I'm a political scientist by training and I also have a law degree. And so um, when I finished my PhD, I was in New England and I didn't want to leave New England because I had a partner who was in a tenured job. So um, I actually fell back when I was still in graduate school. I worked in the graduate school a division uh, running a program for um, uh, graduate student grants and uh, we produced a, a directory that was published by Peterson's Guides on, on finding graduate student funding. So um, I did that while I was still writing my PhD, and so I got the skills of running workshops and writing resumes and writing grant proposals and uh, some administrative work and, and publishing, publishing that field guide. Uh, so I could take those skills and put those on, onto a resume. Uh, so my first job out of graduate school was actually at University of Rhode Island, again, being a proposal developer and working in um, uh, humanities and social sciences through the graduate division, helping faculty get <coughs> collaborative grants. Excuse me. So it was a few years before I actually got my tenure track job. So I did ha actually happen onto that track of, of, of tenured conventional faculty jobs. So, but I realized that these days that's not as frequent. It doesn't happen as frequently. So I was lucky, but I know that um, we need to retool in order to um, make it more systematic uh, that people are prepared with the skills that they need to pursue these kinds of careers because I just happened to stumble onto those things uh, and was lucky to get a tenure track job. But we need to have the dedication to create applied and collaborative learning opportunities I think for our students. And what Molly had said about her location in Atlanta <coughs> is right on point because one of the points um, that I wanted to make is that we need to build strong working relationships between experienced professionals and accomplished faculty um, and start that within our own vicinity. You know, what resources do you have within proximity of your university and then uh, grow it out from there to, to create these kinds of special collaborations. At UCSB what we're doing is um, as Chrissy mentioned, we have revived our terminal master's program and we're designing a curriculum that's a two-year curriculum for uh, different tracks of careers for students to pursue. And we're starting with media, uh, such as news media and the entertainment industry, but also uh, looking at social justice activism and nonprofits and translation work are the other tracks that we're going to be building onto that. We're going to have a conference in January. It's a workshop where we're bringing people in to help us to design this new curriculum. 
uh, including bringing three of our prominent alumni back to uh, give motivational talks, people who've pursued careers like Reza Aslan, who's in media work, and Tim Kring, who uh, is the screenwriter and producer of a show called Heroes that was on NBC, and um, a third person that I'm not going to name yet because we haven't got confirmation from her, but doing digital work. So um, I think that uh, the, 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 the piece that still needs to fall into place is faculty involvement with this. And the support of faculty is crucial, but it is the last thing to come along because the students already know that this is necessary. The faculty are fearful that they don't want to give up the world as they knew it. And they have uh, excuses why this isn't going to work or it's not going to be ideal um, in the years to come in terms of the kinds of graduate students that we get into the program. Um, but we do have uh, one success story, which is museum work. Uh, a colleague of mine who is an endowed shareholder in Catholic studies has been involved in a university exhibition, a university museum. Uh, the exhibition is called Sacred Art in the Age of Contact, Chumash and Latin American Traditions in Santa Barbara. And the Chumash are the local um, uh, bands of, of Native American tribes up and down the coast in California. So the art uh, focuses on the connection between religion and art in both Chumash and Spanish traditions in the early mission period in California. And it highlights themes like sacred space, devotion, language, materiality. And uh, several objects are in this collection that is being displayed on exhibit at UCSB in the museum. But they're also working with the Art Museum and the Natural History Museum in downtown Santa Barbara. So we have doctoral candidates who are paired with museum curators and um, with staff from the missions um, who are you know, interested in educational programming. One facet of this is to contribute curriculum to the fourth and fifth grade uh, learning uh, modules in the elementary schools because in California it's required that students in public schools study missions in the fourth and fifth grades. So um, it's been a, a learning experience for everybody, the faculty member who's in charge, the doctoral candidates, the curators, the professionals, everybody who's uh, you know, collaborating on this team. So it seems like a natural fit because of the uh, resources in the area, right? Uh, as you were saying with the medical schools uh, and, and in Atlanta and your program. Um, you know, the missions and um, the Native American uh, resources and Catholic resources in our area just made this a really nice pilot project. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we're going to be doing more things like that. Thanks. Um I'm Jason Bivens. I am uh, at North Carolina State University, as Chrissy mentioned. I've been there since 2000. I'm a full professor there. Um, I, uh, I'm here because of, uh, out of a sense of frustration, concern, and solidarity. And the reason I put it that way is because at NC State, in my college, the Humanities and Social Science College, we, Religious Studies, are the only program lacking a graduate component. Um, however, my experience since 2000 has been as a graduate faculty member, not only in my college more broadly, but also at UNC and Duke, which means that, like all of us in the room, I have sat and observed and been sort of aghast by the changes and seen student after student, colleague after colleague, not get anything. Um, and so I'm, I'm here to sort of think aloud, to sort of um, contribute my thoughts, uh, however valuable they may be, but also to pursue a series of questions. And I do want to start out by echoing something that Molly, Molly and Kathy 
have said, which is that I think a major problem is um, it, it is sort of squarely housed among those of us who train graduate students. That is, you know, we're risking reifying the old model year after year after year while our students get left out in the cold. But I have to say, I do want beyond this full agreement about that, and we need to explore that and unpack that and institutionally sediment that. But beyond this, I want to think about what is possible and how it is possible among us as a, as a cohort, as a discipline. I want to think about what's possible in terms of applying pressure outside of our faculty. That is, is there some way in which we can not only institutionalize conversations like this at the graduate level, which I think is imperative, right? Mm -hmm. um, and think about how we might um, proliferate models of training. But I want to think about how we might pressure our deans to help us relearn how to train our graduate students. You know, Because if we're going to be flying in the dark about this, there's only so much we can do. Um, if we can't if we can't ensure on some level that the funding we receive, which is less and less every year, especially for those of us in state institutions, mm -hmm. if we can't ensure that at least some of this funding is going to be earmarked for facilitating meaningful institutional material connections with these outside programs, you know, not just within university programs themselves, and I could enumerate several, um, I don't know how substantive the opportunities are going to be for our students. So that's a kind of concern that I have. Can, in other words, can we do more than simply enumerate these other possibilities and then let them fly? Oh, yeah. You know? Um, so that's the kind of thing that, that, that sort of bugs me out going forward. So that's, that's my sort of, um, that's my condensed introduction to myself. And maybe, we, I don't know where we go from here, Chrissy. Um, so I'm happy to have you guys. Um, I'm happy to have you guys drive the conversation, but I'll jump in to poke occasionally as needed. Um, I mean, my first question is the really obvious one, and I think um, for Molly and Kathy, the obvious answer is yes, but mm -hmm. do you have students who are pursuing and exploring outside tracks? Do you know about those, like, do those students tell you that they're doing it? Um, and do they feel safe being out as it were in your departmental context either as building up another plan a alongside pursuing an academic job or as deciding to shift off of the academic path entirely yeah i i, I do and i actually have um several friends from graduate school who who came in right as I was leaving graduate school and who graduated, I went to Indiana for my PhD, who graduated right at the beginning of this current madness, you know? Um, and, and so it's not only that I have friends from graduate school who have gone through this and who have sought, some of them with a confessed sense of shame, some of them with a sense of weird relief and optimism, um, which I don't know if I, I would share if, if I were in their position. Um, I have I have friends who have taken these paths under duress, and I have numerous graduate students, um, especially over the past seven or eight years, um, who have done this. Sometimes they've confessed to me, and not without having had a full conversation with their director. Um, it depends on the director, obviously. It's a very individual thing. Um, but uh, the the career paths have been many. But I think in each case. Um, there's a distinction between the folks who have beat their head against the wall of, you know, four, four, twenty-two thousand dollars a year minimal benefit, non-tenure track positions, and then experience burnout after what three years, four years, right? And meanwhile, we continue to sort of exploit them, you know, because you know we have to sing for ourselves, but we have to cram bodies in seats, and that's our expedient way of doing so, right? It's a whole sort of ethical hell that we're all going through, and and you know, I 
I'm looking for a way out. You know, I'm looking for a way to sort of stop exploiting people if that's possible, whether that's unionization or some other thing. It's happening at Duke. It's not happening at UNC. Um, but I have lots of graduate students who say, yeah, you know, um, I guess I'm going to have to look into podcasting. I guess I'm going to have to try to work at the National Archives. I guess I'm going to have to actually see if there's anything possible in folklore. Maybe I can be a guide at a national park. But, you know, I, I guess one of the things that really disturbs me and compels me and I had this incredible talk on the plane with an anthropologist um, about this kind of thing. She's about 20 years older than I am. And she's sort of, um, sh she's had a, a less difficult time adjusting to the reality than a lot of people who are her peers because her son is just about finishing up his PhD in anthropology. So she has to know. Um, but I suppose I'm also curious, knowing of my, thinking of the conversations I've had with my friends and with graduate students whom I love very deeply, I'm interested in the phenomenology of precarity, right? Like, how do we deal with that as responsible custodians, at least on some level, custodians of futures, you know? Um, how, it, it, is there some way that we all must sort of dive into that phenomenology together? Should we be forced to confront it as professors, as advisors, as letter writers, you know? Um, I think there's some um, obligation we have of confronting the, the fear that our graduate students feel, um, the shame that they sometimes feel. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's just a strange way of thinking about it. All of this is to say, Chrissy, yes, I, I have dozens and dozens of people I know who are forcibly going through this path. And when I talk about the phenomenology of precarity, I mean their acute sense that, you know, just to say what's obvious, I didn't fucking get into it for this. Like, how do we deal with that? I don't know how to deal with that. It's terrible, obviously. Well, I think all of those things are what we've experienced. I think that those are the reasons why I say we need to have more systemic approach, like you're saying, yeah. uh, developing a strong curriculum and right. a real graduate path in that direction, because it is precarious and it is everybody's doing it um, just haphazardly. People are saying, I guess I have to go out and find a job in a national park. Mm -hmm. Rather than having them say that, be able to say that they have uh, um, some had some uh, collaborative learning experiences outside the classroom that has prepared them to do that. So that's right. It becomes a real choice. Yeah. And that faculty, that's a part of it, that faculty uh, know about it and, and participate in it. So that students, a lot of graduate students, to answer your question, are ashamed, want to hide it. They're afraid that they will not get funding from the department if their faculty advisor knows that right. they are thinking about going outside of academia. I've heard that a lot because in the University of California system, um, there is something called Humanists at Work, which is run by the UC Humanities Research Institute, a system-wide institute that is doing this work, you know, at that level, right. um, talking about, um, you know, helping graduate students um, think about um, how their skills translate to other kinds of careers, right. and they express that idea there as well that they don't tell their faculty advisor about it. So we have to get faculty willing to, sure. to recognize that this is uh, not only um, necessary, but a good development, mm -hmm. that, that it's a positive thing to be able to um, connect students to educational opportunities, to other kinds of opportunities yeah. to apply their skills. I mean, I like the way you put that, because if we don't make that adjustment within our graduate programs and within our colleges and within our universities, and yeah, we need support, financial and otherwise, to do this successfully. If we don't, then basically we're institutionalizing failure. Mm -hmm. But if we do these things successfully, whatever that actually requires, then we can institutionalize something different, right. conceivably. Right. And I love the idea of collaborative programs. Right. And as you were saying, getting your deans on board to give you the funding to be able to make these transitions. Good luck. Yeah. We have very supportive deans at UCSB. Our grad dean and our HFA, Humanities and Fine Arts dean, are actually kind of at the lead edge of this. And this is the other issue is 
when faculty see it coming from the top yeah. down, they resist it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants right. to cooperate. You know? right. So, uh, yeah, so it has to come from you know faculty engagement and enthusiasm, and it happens then on sort of a pilot project basis, like what's happened with the museum art thing I was mentioning. But I do think that, yeah, deans are pivotal too, because um, in terms of all the funding at, at, uh, at you know, various levels, having uh, funding for instruction, right. as well as the funding for uh, career uh, preparation. But, sorry. No, I mean, I think that my context is a bit different because it's a standalone MA program, so right. we don't have PhD candidates that are concerned or feeling shame or feeling like they need to hide things. Um, but that said, a student that wants to write a thesis came just last week and said, oh, can I do an internship too? Or are they exclusive things? And they're not at all. We have an internship course on the books, so that's no problem. Um, so I would like to think that maybe that's a student that will do both things and figure out what mm -hmm. his next step is and maybe end up in a program mm -hmm. like the one that you're developing at Santa Barbara with not just the opportunity then to collaborate some other way, but the experience of already having collaborated or worked in a nonprofit setting and bring yeah. that um, to the classroom as a PhD candidate. But you also mentioned students saying, well, I guess I'll have to podcast. Mm -hmm. And I realized that in terms of like what I do as a faculty member, I have a class and the big assignment is to work in small groups and make a podcast. Right. So I think another thing we're trying to do as a department, at least the junior folks in my program, are working in career competencies pretty explicitly. And those are part of our learning outcomes, too. So students are picking up skills like grant writing, podcasting, creating web pages, and then they have a product. I mean, my students can link to our SoundCloud account and put that on their resume or on their own web pages. Um, their parents listen, yeah. so they have something to show for what they've done, right. too. Yeah. So, I mean, those are like baby steps compared to the fears that PhD candidates are facing, but yeah. it's at least a little something. But I mean, I, I think I think the significant difference is um, not only where that action creating a podcast is located, but how it's presented to the student. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the graduate programs that I'm affiliated with, this is never discussed, you know, complete your court work, coursework, complete your exams, come up with a topic. Right. And, and I, I do want to have a conversation mm -hmm. with with the room about mm -hmm. how students choose dissertation topics based on their expectations about the job market. Right. That's very significant. Mm -hmm. um, but but I think if graduate programs successfully institutionalize this, right, absorb this project into the curriculum, then oh well, I guess I'm going to have to go podcast isn't like this last ditch Hail Mary sort of yeah. situation. It's This is a live option that I've been trained for mm -hmm. and that's relevant to the work that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's not podcasting as such that's necessarily morally you know, valued in one direction or the other. It's it's the way it's presented to students and, and the degree to which or if it's a part of their training. Well, and I would just add to that that it doesn't just make it a, not a last-ditch effort because, oh, it was part of my training, but if a faculty person presents it, mm -hmm. it becomes respectable within the culture of the department. Absolutely. And the culture of the discipline. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge issue is, is 
how people feel about it. You're not just worried about letting your faculty advisor know because you might not get funding, although that's a very real concern. Um, You're worried about disappointing them. Um, I was very lucky. I did not have that situation myself, but I have had many people come to me since I left my graduate program. And I have had people message me on Facebook and say, I think I need to figure out how to write a resume. I don't know anyone else who can talk to me about that. Also, would you please not post on Facebook that we're seeing each other because I don't want anybody to know I'm talking wow. to you. Wow. Even being seen talking to me, having coffee with me, you know, you're, da- you're like radioactive. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. So situating it in the, in the context of the classroom, and this came up earlier today at the uh, session um, with scholars who have done work on public policy with the State Department and other federal agencies. Um, and Elizabeth Perdromo from uh, Tufts specifically mentioned that um, she really thinks that one of the things that we need to do is engage students in the classroom in thinking about these things, not as either or, but both and. And that makes the non-academic option a much more real and viable and respectable thing, yeah. I think. Um, so I want to push a little bit further on the question of faculty resistance. Have you had any conversations with your fellow faculty? Have you found that you've had you know you've hit on any strategies that have helped them see why this is a conversation that needs to be happening? Um, or are you finding resistance even in your, you know, individual conversations, and that that it just isn't surmountable? I think in my case, it's been about funding for graduate students mm-hmm. because uh, a few years ago, you know, after the downturn in the economy, we had to uh, <clears throat> scale back on admissions in the graduate program and move to what we call a fully funded model of funding our graduate students. Rather than it, and we could no longer admit graduate students without a funding package. So now we are limited to the ones we can afford for a five year package. So mm-hmm. that reduced it by about a third, <laughs> our admissions to uh, two thirds of what it had been. And so then the next step was to say, well, then how can we diversify our curriculum and attract students um, and also get funding for these students who might be following this track of, of non-academic careers. And so that would increase the number of gra- uh, students in our graduate, um, that's how st- faculty see it. So if I wanna continue to have seminars that I can offer every year and they would have a, a respectable enrollment in them, we need to have other ways of attracting graduate students and finding funding for them. So you know, part of this is about funding that will come with preparation of students for non-academic fields. Mm-hmm. Um, so and yeah, so I think that's opened some people's eyes to this, and also the fact that it's harder for our finishing graduate students to get jobs, the conventional tenure track job, and seeing them go off into the contingent faculty market and not being very satisfied with that. So um, people are trying to figure out how can they best prepare graduate students to work after. Yeah. I think you know, in terms of a couple of campus resources. Um, one thing that strikes me that would be particularly valuable is to focus on the offices or departments or whatever they're called on our individual campuses that focus on faculty extension, right? Basically, the, the departments that help us to get grant money and so on and so forth, right? I think we need to leverage somehow, I think we need to 
leverage our influence so as to put those offices to work more consistently for our students as well, to put them in a better position at least to successfully complete their degree um, in a timely manner and and so on and so forth. And the other thing that I think we can do institutionally, I don't know which departments everybody in the room went to, right? But I mean, lots of us went to graduate programs where they didn't even give us any advice on teaching, you know? And if they're going to help us how to teach, you know, how in the world are they going to help us to, how to get a job, right? And that's even according to the old model, right? So I think, you know, every one of us, and this is something we can do, every one of us needs to reconfigure our graduate curricula so that from the beginning, these conversations, workshops, pedagogy itself, dissertation topics, all of this is configured not to a particular set of outcomes, but calibrated to what's actually going on, not to the old model, you know? I think, you know, without that, we have no responsibility, you know, we can't, we can't claim any sort of responsible stewardship if we can't at least do that for our students. Mm -hmm. Because in five years, across the humanities, like in religious studies and anthropology at least, 20% of our graduating PhDs, within five years, 20% will be able to find tenure track jobs. Mm -hmm. And that number is not going north anytime soon, unless everything changes, ha ha ha, you know? So if we have any ethical standards, we have to deal with that reality. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I think ethics is a key word with that. No doubt. Mm -hmm. And and this is where to your question, Christy, I mean, with my you know, again, at NC State, it's kind of different because we don't have graduate students. And it just so happens that um, my 60-something colleagues are really not very involved in graduate training across the triangle. So they kind of express this neoliberal empathy, like, wow, I feel their pain, right? Um, but they don't actually do anything about it. And they're not called upon to do anything about it because they don't have students. Um, I think, in general, the departments at UNC and Duke are fairly good about acknowledging or the faculty at UNC and Duke, um, including the adjunct faculty, adjunct graduate faculty, are fairly good about recognizing the problem. But at least based on the evidence that I have experience with, i.e. people, it hasn't made much of a material difference. I mean, we all know, everybody in the room knows people who basically already have half the qualifications to be promoted to full professor, and they can't find tenure track jobs. You know, it's absolutely monstrous. You know, I don't want to be able to swap out some of my colleagues for these badass 20-somethings, you know? <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Um, so clearly you're feeling, especially Jason down at your end of the table, like there's just a, a real lack of institutional resources to help departments and faculty in preparing graduate students for non-faculty professional outcomes. Mm -hmm. What kinds of resources would you hope for? Maybe we could start by asking what Georgia State is doing institutionally that supports your department mm -hmm. in having that graduate program. Um, so we have a new dean. She's been around not quite 18 months. And uh, one of the things she's done is lead the college in a strategic planning initiative that's followed the university strategic plan. So I was on a committee about graduate education, and we have our points, and one of them now as we're voting to adopt the plan is to put in place a person in the dean's office who will help us locate and create more institutional partnerships and connections because for example this hospital group wellstar we are working with them i brought some materials with me today and one of the things i discovered because of this committee work but then is also uh, noted right here is uh, my colleague Carmen in biology is also working with Wellstar. And before Carmen and I were on this committee together, we didn't know that our two departments had these institutional partnerships. So the dean is committed to putting um, 
basically giving a faculty member some course release to become the person who organizes these partnerships. And if that works, then putting more permanent people in place in the dean's office. So that's one institutional piece. But part of the reason the institution, at least in, in my situation, is motivated to do that is because the state of Georgia is reticent to fund education at all. Um, so I started in 2009 and received my first tiny bit of a raise nine years later. Um, so, and lots of my colleagues who had been at Georgia State for a while then were associates who in the middle of their career had no motivation to do much of anything because they were being asked to do more and more and had not even a cost of living increase. Um, so there are lots of pieces of this puzzle, but one of the things is that the institution has a lot of pressure to find money. And so then they're putting resources behind programs that create these partnerships. So in our case, Wellstar gives $6,000 per year. The college put in three and the department put in three of our graduate funding budget. And together we created this package. Um, but one of the things I'll do in replicating this fellowship is to ask the community partner to give more and more and the institution less to make it more viable. Um, so yeah, there are some structural pieces in place and I'd be happy to answer questions about that. Um, I think it's a necessary piece, but the, there's still a burden on the department. And so to go back to the question you asked a minute ago in terms of my colleagues being resistant, the resistance I feel is when I as DGS or now my colleague who's our grad director come back from the graduate council meeting where we get our target number for the fall and that's the number we need to recruit into the program in order to keep our program viable. Uh, the pressure to enroll students, especially MAs as money makers, is very real. So on the flip side of, of what we're doing to train people to go into careers is this pressure to find people who will pay us to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the ethics yeah. question arises again in a different way in the standalone context. Yeah. Yeah, I think that part of the uh, institutional resources that are necessary are to marshal, you know, the enthusiasm of people who are very visionary, um, mm. or visionary, very is not a good modifier for that, but um, for instance, you know, we have a new initiative on medical humanities, as you're talking about hospital groups, it makes me think of that, that, you know, we have a lot of uh, undergraduates in the STEM fields. Uh, and they're there, you know, I mean, the ratio now is four to one STEM to humanities and fine arts, whereas in 2009, it was 1.2 to one. So Not it's recent. really, really wow. increased uh, tremendously. So how do we get those STEM students into our classrooms, the undergraduates, right? Yeah, yeah. So we, somebody in humanities came up with the idea of medical humanities, and so we've gotten mm -hmm. up behind that where you know what classes do we teach about healing death and dying mm -hmm. would be relevant for students who think they're, they're pre-med or they're some kind of a pre-engineering uh, student and um, so the more that you can sort of uh, uh, work into in an interdisciplinary fashion with other people on campus who also want to address this problem about uh, educational reform and what's necessary uh, the better off I think you're going to be and the more faculty uh, can see uh, reasons why we should be doing this. Um, so the medical humanities is one. The other thing is that we're, besides having a terminal master's, which is within the PhD program, so you can go on and get your PhD, oh, okay. 
uh, even, uh, you know, you could have a standalone uh, uh, terminal master's degree in this new curriculum for non-academic fields, but you could mm. also do it as you're getting your PhD, your, your conventional religious studies PhD. Um, but we also have what's called a PhD emphasis in religious studies so that we get graduate students who are in feminist studies or global studies or history who think that, you know, some specialization in religion is going to strengthen you know their portfolio and so uh, in that way we are you know breaking down some interdisciplinary barriers and also preparing people you know not necessarily always for academic fields but for having some skills that will take them into uh, educational and nonprofit careers outside of the academy um, but we're also designing uh, just beginning to think about a five-year program where undergraduates can get an MA if they, mm -hmm. in five years in other words if they continue at UCSB um, in the junior year, they would apply for the five-year program. And so then in their senior year and the fifth year, they would be taking graduate level seminars to get the specialized knowledge in religion and acquire some skills. Uh, it's not quite the same. They wouldn't necessarily be doing the internships that the MA PhD students would be, but at least it's an idea of making religious studies appear to be relevant for career preparation mm -hmm. uh, and, and that will get students into the classroom. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And of course the, under, the undergrad to grad school move is something right. that's also worthy of consideration. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, everybody's had that conversation, right? You know, Dr. Bibbins, you know, I'm really excited by the study of religion. Will you write me a letter, says the 4.0 student, mm -hmm. only after we have a talk, you know? I mean, that's that sort of big abstract future stuff, what's going to become of the university, you know? I mean, that's that's real, but, you know, that's a little bit outside our purview, I guess, right? Um, but in terms of the survival of programs, the undergraduate education, this is something we face constantly at NC State, um, uh, program review. So, you know, sort of slavering state legislatures want a program closure for the symbolic utility of a program closure, you know? So we have to say, ah, you know, well, we, you know, yes, we fall below this arbitrary number of majors per annum that you've designated, you know, but we're really, really efficient in FTEs. So, you know, you have to keep cramming bodies and seats, which means that for institutions that do have a graduate program, we need to keep admitting graduate students so they can be RTAs. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, the ethical problem is a, is a multiply compounded one. Um, mm. But yeah, this is alarming to hear that since 2009, it went from 1.2 to 1 to 4 to 1. Yeah. That's very rapid. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like to throw out there, we've uh, talked quite a bit in the working group on um, return on investment. And this is true of AAR's relationship to applied religious studies folks, like what's our return on investment for paying to be here? Uh -huh. um, I think that it's not just a question of getting bodies and seats and getting money into the budget, but also what's the return on investment for the students whose bodies you're getting into the seats, right? right? Mm -hmm. So, and not thinking of them simply as generating income, but if you're giving them a good return on their investment, if they're getting a quality education that is leading them to something or right. supporting them in getting where they want to go, I don't think that's necessarily unethical. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so that's, and that's part of this, I think for me, is thinking about that return on investment for everybody involved, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I wonder myself, having been on the back end um, in administration and having helped faculty in religion fill out their faculty reports every year for the upper administration, yeah. having helped do department reports, um, 
How many MAs did you advise this year? How many went on to PhD programs? How many PhDs did you advise this year? How many finished? How many went on to academic placements? And they're not getting asked, or at least they weren't um, when I was working in that context. Um, you know, where else are your students ending up? What other good work are your students doing? And so placing more value on other kinds of work that students do. Um, I noticed that GSU actually has a careers page that lists current placements of graduates in a wide variety of fields. Um, do any of your other institutions do that? Do you systematically collect information on graduates who don't end up in academic jobs? Yeah, we do. We don't publicize it on our departmental homepage necessarily. Um, I don't think we. I don't think we'd be in any kind of existential danger if we did so. But yeah, we're constantly trying to figure this out, just in terms of as an undergraduate cohort, but also as people who are trying to pursue institutional relationships with other programs in our college and so forth in a way that might you know yield further benefits for these students but yeah we're constantly doing that and the, the graduate programs that I work with are doing likewise you know they don't put everything up there they don't put stand-up comic up there well but why but that's is, real but why is that a potential existential threat mm-hmm. I, I I actually had someone say to me many years ago that one of the great failings of um, a program was that not many of the students who finished with PhDs went into tenure track jobs. Mm-hmm. One of them was the startup editor for Pathios and later for On yeah. Faith with the Washington Post. Right. You know, <laughs> right. um, somebody actually got a tenure track job and then chose to leave it because it wasn't what they yeah. wanted to be doing. Um, you know, people in journalism, people in the public sector. Um, and somehow this was not seen as value added, but why, so I wonder why not publicize the information? I'm just thinking about our deans. I don't don't think the decisions themselves represent an existential threat to the discipline. I just think the failure of our, you know, one of the worries I have in short is that if we are unsuccessful, um, unsuccessful in, in landing people in good graduate programs or in getting people good tenure track jobs, and you know we're all so we are all similarly so unsuccessful these days because of the nature of the field, right? Um, there is a a real possibility that those of us who have unsympathetic deans, um, or deans who say nice things to you but do unnice things behind your back, um, are going to continue to put kind of you know, program pressure on you. Um, and so I I wonder because of the tone deafness of certain administrator, administrators to these realities, um, some of my colleagues and I are nervous about sort of displaying this information as if we uh it's not that we don't authorize it but as if in authorizing this we might be authorizing the continued diminution of our discipline which is already under regular program review that's what i mean by existential threat and so to me this seems like a key point for institutional change right that we need to start valuing all these other places where people with religious studies training are out there doing good work Mm -hmm. Um, many of us are landing in these places by happenstance and through you know gumption on our you know Mm -hmm. uh, and personal work but we're ending up in these places where we are using our training and we are doing good things in the world and Mm -hmm. our training both skills and knowledge are helping us do that and so I'm wondering about what we can do to sort of shift the larger institutional perspective. And again, this goes back to that faculty reporting and annual reporting. Why is a faculty member who has to fill out a report that says, did your master's students go to PhD programs? Did your PhD students get academic jobs? And doesn't ask about anything else. Where's their motivation 
to brag about, much less support students in pursuing other things mm -hmm. because this report feeds into their tenure and promotion and raises, right? Yeah. Um, so what, what do you guys think about how we sort of get the institutions to think more broadly about um, where religious studies and other humanities training lead students and where people are doing good work in the world that is in part a function of that training? Well, in our institution, mm -hmm. they already ask those questions. The form doesn't look the same way mm -hmm. that apparently they do, uh, the ones you've seen. but. So we do get asked to report where our students are, no matter whether it's in academia or not. I think that the crucial um, stumbling block at the moment is faculty who, um, you know, it's understandable. We want to replicate ourselves. You know, it is uh, the, the uh, education is an apprenticeship model, and we are uh, apprenticing these graduate students, and we don't have the skills. We, I'm speaking, you know, the royal we, of, uh, I don't have, you know, don't have the skills. If I don't have experience or connections in the nonprofit organizations world, how can I prepare a student for that? Unless I have some other institutional resources, you know, that can can step in. Um, so uh, that's what faculty fear is that I know what I know, and I want to pass that on to the next generation. And I also can write letters of recommendation, and my, you know, I'll be recognized in these other. Uh, colleges and universities, and, and, and that's how I'm going to help my student get his first job. But uh, I can't do that for a student if she's going to go into the publishing world or the nonprofit organization world or something like that. So that's what I commonly hear from my faculty, mm -hmm. um, what they worry about most. I think another piece of this is that uh, a lot of institutions haven't uh, kept up with their alumni well at like a university, college, or department level. So um, to be able to say, bring people back, like Kathy's describing is gonna happen in January and have a panel of students who've done very accomplished things that aren't you know, the, the typical apprentices going off and replicating their advisors. I could see that as eye-opening and then you have conversation partners and they're contributing back to like these are changes that would be beneficial to other people coming up like us um, so I feel like that's one way to open up the f conversation with faculty I mean that's really what happened for us is we had this alum who was a medical ethicist then at Grady Hospital which is like the major trauma center at the end of campus and he eventually moved to Wellstar and that's why we're partnered with them now but it was, you know, kind of a personal relationship yeah. conversation that Catherine and Tim Rennick had with Jason. And, you know, this thing has opened up because of that. So I feel like there's a piece of that personal investment PhD advisors have in their students that if you just sort of shifted to a slightly different track, maintaining that relationship can have these same very positive benefits. And you know, open up completely new doors for other students coming up through the system. Um, but it takes getting a couple of those out there too. So maybe how to get the first person to come back and talk is one of the questions. So I do want us to have time for questions with the audience. And I actually have a question for the audience. If I could just see a show of hands, how many people here are faculty? Tenure track or tenured? 
Okay, woohoo, thank you for coming. And how many of you are students? Okay. And I know we've got one of our career services professionals with us, Susan Lawler from HDS. You guys should stick around for the career services professionals panel we're having at five. Um, the tracking of alumni and getting them engaged with your programs, I think is gonna be a key piece of that uh, conversation. Um, so do y'all have any other thoughts that you'd like to share before we move it into audience Q&A? I say we open it yeah, up. Okay, great. Um, so folks, this is being recorded for podcast. Um, if you're interested in hearing last year's panelists, that's already available <laughs> online. Um, so I'm going to bring around a microphone. If you'll just raise your hand and let me know if you have questions. Hi, um, two things, just a, a quick point. Um, Would you mind introducing yourself? Oh, sure. I'm Dan Moses, and I'm from Syracuse. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities to get experience in new kind of fields and skill sets from um, what you might usually call service work on campus. Um, committees and things I found my way into through the graduate student organization, our religion student organization, and that put me in touch over the course of my whole time there with people who worked in the graduate school and worked in the career services center, people in the administration who I now know and who sort of will come to me and tap me to fill a role on some committee on campus where I learn about administration or I surveys or assessment or something like that, a accreditation kind of assessment. Um, the thing I, I want to know about from you all, though, oh, um, campus media organizations like College Radio can get some great experience in, in broadcasting or on the production end as well there. Um, what I want to know from, from you all, though, is uh, when you approach an off-campus uh, partner to do something with your program, how do you how how do you pitch it? How do you sort of handicap and then communicate what's in it for them? Why they should partner with you? Um, so part of, part of the lingo uh, involved in all of this is a try before you buy model, mm -hmm. um, and I don't like those words, but I think that there's something in it for the student and something in it for the business. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with these fellows working with Jason, the medical ethicist, Wellstar can train them as interns to do exactly what they need smart people doing. Um, and so then if the, the intern applies someplace else and gets a job, or if they continue at Wellstar, Wellstar has made an investment in, um, you know, training their employees to do what they need. So there's a way that both people are benefiting, and I think that's a big piece of um, how we have involved industry partners in education. So say, say. So saying, at least at the outset, we will kind of lend you a person who will do pretty much what you need them to do to prove the utility of our folks. Um, not so much okay. lending them a person. So the way the way the fellowship works is that the student works uh, 15 hours a week for Wellstar, but also with the department. So it's a sort of split position. And they do that for four semesters so that they are actually interning and training with the chief medical officer, and there's a sort of choose your own adventure list of things that Jason and I imagined before we had a fellow. So they can be working with him on grant applications. They can be doing research in our university libraries that supports the work he's doing. They can be job shadowing him. 
um, as he goes to patients' bedsides. So they're also involved in like human subjects research and HIPAA and so all of those sorts of things happening. It's not that we lend them someone so much. And then in terms of like why our students, um, our students are trained to do things that industry says industry wants. So uh, one of our associates de associate deans and I were talking and she just met with a CEO of MailChimp and they said, well, yeah, we advertise these positions and we say we want this or that, but really we want someone who can work in a team and communicate well in writing and, and, and orally. So we say, you know, these are the jobs you're advertising. These are the very skills our students are learning in addition to cultural uh, studies, cultural sensitivity, all of those pieces of religious studies. So that's what we're giving them in addition to like just an intern. Would you mind if I asked you a question? And actually, maybe for all the graduate students in the room, what's the role of student organization? You mentioned the graduate student organization and the, and the I guess Syracuse as a religion student organization. Can you can you talk about what, what sort of strategies you guys are, are pursuing, whether you feel like you have effective representation and power? It seems relevant. Well, strategies for what? Helping people get on the job market? For, for just organizational strategies and representation and, st and quite frankly, grad student rights. Um, grad student rights varies a lot from place to yeah. place. Um, there is a unionization effort on our campus now. I don't believe our grad organization is part of it formally. Okay. Um, the main thing they have done for us in terms of from like the career services end is um, co-sponsor events with our career services department. Put put money up for things that a critical mass of people say they, they need. Yeah. That's the main thing they do, and I can okay. pass this to. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Wendy Anderson from Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, my uh, primary role is actually uh, teaching administrative at a humanities center, uh, from which we have been. Um, running uh, first an NEH Next Generation PhD planning grant, and now we're looking at some other funding opportunities to bring together faculty, administrators in you know the career center, the graduate school, and so forth, and graduate student representatives around the question, larger questions of sort of how to transform the humanities PhDs. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 10 different departments and programs, uh, none of which are religious studies, mm -hmm. that, uh, which is uh, uh, that uh, have doctoral programs. What I was wondering, um, what I wanted to ask you was what kinds of cooperation you had found between academic programs. And I know there are some uh, joint degree programs and so forth, but what, I mean, we, we don't, on the one hand, there are certain types of programs. Of course, of course, it turns out art history has, you know, a great museum work program all set up, right? Because no wonder. There are some things that work better for some disciplines, but there's also seems like a lot of possible duplication of effort if we're all in our own little departmental, you know, labs experimenting. So I was curious about the roles of um, those kinds of interdepartmental or interdisciplinary work at your institutions. Okay. Um, we have a next generations grant as well, so we're planning along those lines. Um, but the, in terms of answering what exists already, we have a, a joint uh, uh, researchers in psychology and religion, so religion experience in the mind uh, lab group. Uh, and 
as I mentioned already, there's a PhD emphasis in religious studies, so psychology graduate students can do the religion emphasis if they like um, to talk about cognitive science and, of religion. And um, then also we have a faculty position uh, that stems from that about ethics, religion, and science, and we have another that we're uh, in the, uh, attempting to fill, you know, a conventional tenure track job. And then next year we're going to interview for religion and environment. Again, a joint position with environmental studies and Bren School of Environmental Studies is a big uh, entity on campus, so that's a joint degree program. Um, and that's largely undergraduate teaching, but of course when we hire that person, um, you know, he or she will be working with graduate students in religious studies, um, but teaching undergraduate courses in environmental science. So um, that's an example. And um, we, uh, but what we're focusing on is developing the career services part of it in terms of our Next Generations grant, because uh, that's what's key is bringing in people who can help uh, develop skills like resume building and writing uh, digital media forums and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's an important piece of it. Yeah, I feel like the career services piece is a learning edge for us yet. It's um, There are only a few career services folks, and so it's a big job, uh, much like advising, <laughs> university advising, to educate advisors and career services um, about what it is we do, especially, I mean, Atlanta is a major metropolitan area, but it's in the south, and so people still expect us to be producing pastors. I'm, uh-huh. <laughs> um, the other thing we've done, though, is really try to identify certificate programs that offer our students skill sets that are totally different from what our faculty can do. So one of the things we were pursuing and have stopped is creating a certificate in religious studies. We thought that would capture some low-hanging fruit in terms of getting PhD candidates from history or wherever into our courses, and that would make everything better for everyone in addition to producing credit hours. Um, but we're finding, at least at Georgia State, that those certificates aren't just magnetically, magically working anymore, and so it's better to put our energy into these partnerships that we can say, you know, for your investment in our MA, you're getting kind of two for the price of one if you do our MA and our college gets the credit for that with the certificate in nonprofit management or public health. And you have this recognizable degree and certificate, so you're not saying, oh, I have an MA in religious studies and I did a lot of work in public health or I did a lot of coursework in wherever. You have this thing that says exactly all of what you've done and people can look up online, what does that certificate program mean? So to give them the credentialing that isn't, you know, it's a very separate skill set. Um, so those are the kinds of partnerships we're trying to develop. Yeah, for us, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just briefly, I mean, for us, aside from joint hires and things of this nature, one of the things that we've tried to do is within NC State, because we lack a graduate program, we've tried to pursue the opportunity of developing a religious studies minor, as a, or excuse me, a concentration within um, the School of Public and International Affairs, Communication, Digital Rhetoric, and Media. 
and public history. You know, and this is the kind of thing that goes a long way towards promoting inside our institutions the sort of public cultural value of the study of religion. Um, and beyond that, there's the North Carolina Historical Association, uh, UNC's oral history program, and things of this nature. So, collaborative possibilities do exist even even at the undergraduate level. So I'm uh, Patrick Mason, I'm at Claremont Graduate University, and I'm a religion faculty member, but actually a relatively new dean, so I'm one of the Sorry. Uh, maybe bad guys, or, or possibly, maybe I can be redeemed, I'm not sure, uh, which is why I'm here. But we're actually trying to do a lot of the, the things that you're talking about, this is really exciting, so, so thank you for all these perspectives. And one of the things I'm running into is the faculty resistance, and trying not, because trying to impose it from on top is not, uh, doesn't always go well, right? Uh, even with the best of intentions. So, so how, can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm particularly interested you know, with these certificate programs because it sounds like um, that you're not adding more hours, right, to, to the degree. So That's that right. means the students are getting less religion content than they would have if they were in a straight up MA, right? So that's one of the conversations we're having. They say, oh, if you start introducing all these courses or certificates, they have less subject expertise. And the reason they came to graduate school was to become a subject expert in religion or in our various other programs. So how do you, how do you negotiate that? And then are these paid internships? No. Uh, they're unpaid. Right. Okay. But if the student is on some other kind of fellowship. So at the moment, we're funding almost 100% of our MA students either from our, our students are trained to how teach. many is that uh, there are 24 people in our program that's a good, that's a good number that's, thank you yeah. <laughs> i mean I'll to be fully that, funded yeah. to be fully funded for yeah. sure yeah so in georgia um some of that is uh funding offered when they're admitted and they're uh they train to teach our core course but our our graduate students teach only 40 students at a time which is still a lot but not like 200 or something really horrible um, and they're trained to teach. We have a faculty member dedicated to uh, leading them through the course and they meet ahead of time anyway. Um, uh, so they are funded, but the internships can't be paid. They have to be unpaid to earn course credit. Um, what was the rest? Sorry, I lost track of your question. Right. Right. Um, so in our context, uh, at, of the 24 people in the program, six are now on the nonprofit management track. Um, and I would say there are another four to six people in the program because they were initially attracted to we're doing interesting things. So I'm not sure what would be happening if we didn't have this other option. Uh, so, you know, the carrot is you get more diverse, interested people in the classroom because they have different career objectives. So you, we have a student who's been in higher education a long time. She was in um, D.C. working like in student housing. She has a Ph.D. already, well, an E.D.D. already came back to do our program because she wanted to work with homeless youth. And her final project in the certificate track, she's creating an app that young homeless women can use to verify where they are located and that helps them get access to education because you need a physical address to do a lot of things in the world. Um, so that person is in our class because of this program. And if we didn't have the program, she wouldn't be with us. 
So there is a value added because you're increasing numbers in a way, even if you're maybe decreasing the tradition. I don't think we're de I don't think we're decreasing mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. traditional student numbers, the number of, of traditional MA thesis track people. I don't think we I'm forcibly decreasing that number by introducing these other tracks. I think I'm keeping our program relevant and viable because we have other options. And that's a royal eye. Yeah. I don't want anyone to think I'm not at all doing it alone at all at all. Well, can I just ask, I, not all of my courses were religious studies in my PhD program. Indeed I did not. lots of things mm -hmm. that were in other spaces. So the idea that we're somehow detracting from the religious studies education by having people go out and take courses in other areas strikes me as very odd. I mean, I was taking classes in history. I was taking classes in English. Um, yeah, but that's still in the humanities. I've taken some mm -hmm. non-profit management. Right, yeah. like, we're in management school. That's yeah. no longer like... Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But I, I just it feels like it's, you know, of a piece with, you know, part of sort of part and parcel of being in religious studies is your religious studies as a discipline is mm -hmm. what is that? So we're pulling together a subject area in a lot of ways. And if that subject mm -hmm. area reaches out a little further now than it did 10 or 20 years ago, um, there are some people who would say, if you want to do that, go get it. There, are, there is a master's in nonprofit, mm -hmm. go get that. And yeah, stuff. however, I might be naive, but I think to re respond to that is to point out, I mean, to get people to recognize that uh, public understanding of religion right now is at an all time low. And that, um, you know, if we don't do something to improve, uh, you know, dissemination of better information, then it's not going to happen. So, I mean, that's one of the, the, the things that my faculty respond to well, is <laughs> just mm -hmm. to say, that's a little bit of the stick and not the mm -hmm, carrot, is mm -hmm. that, you know, look how bad things are now, <laughs> and uh, so take some control, take some responsibility here to get that uh, content out there, and we got to do it through these vehicles of media vehicles, and there are mm -hmm. new media vehicles now, and, and so if we have graduate students who understand that and can work in that area, mm -hmm. so much the better. Um, and also in terms of nonprofit work as well, it's, it's kind of an area that we're in uh, that space too, but we don't know how to teach them management skills. Right. But if they can have cultural literacy or, and religious literacy and work in nonprofit um, uh, fields, then uh, we're all better off and, and there'll be more interest, more generating, you know, filling the seats in the class yeah. of students coming through. And it strikes me that as a dean, you know, I mean, that that's the moment at which you want to say to the faculty member, you know, faculty member X says, eh, go get the MSW, you know, it strikes me that that's the moment you say, no, 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 stay in religious studies and we can actually proliferate your opportunities within the discipline. And the argument from expediency with faculty is, you know what, this is how we actually pursue meaningful adjustment to the realities mm -hmm. of the job market on behalf of our students and also keep the body in the seat that yeah. we need for our programmatic survival. Yeah. Hi, first of all, thanks for your remarks. Um, my name is Hannah and I work at a small nonprofit in Washington, DC called the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics and Ritual, Water. Um, so I'm coming oh, nice. at cool. this, I came to this panel, I guess, as a prospective graduate student. I have an undergraduate degree in religion um, and I'm really interested in further study, whether that's a terminal masters or a PhD program. 
Um, and I guess um, you spoke to this value question a little bit. I'm wrestling with the tension of, on the one hand, working with um, people who are doing really creative things with uh, PhDs and a DMIN, um, and on the other hand, looking at graduate programs and not feeling legitimate as a candidate when I look at the question like, oh, what, what, how will this degree advance your career? Mm -hmm. um, and when I see that question, I feel like most of my peers who are also um, pursuing PhDs uh, or looking into these programs are like specifically looking for tenure track positions when I know that mm -hmm. that's something that I don't want. Yeah. So it's like how, I don't know if you can speak to, I guess the value question of when you're an applicant, you know, how can I, seriously showcase the fact that you know I'm interested in the advanced study of religion but I don't want a tenure track position mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. be written off as not a legitimate candidate that's a tough one you know because I think a lot of a lot of uh, admissions committees uh, on the one hand there, there's the content answer you know so you can say yeah I'm invested in the study of religion for the sake of the study of religion and that's all well and good and your GRE scores and your GPA are all awesome um, but in terms of the, I don't really think about this degree possibility in terms of a tenure track job, I think the admissions committee is probably, you know, hewing to the old model is probably thinking, man, our funding depends in part on mm -hmm. displaying a certain kind of placement rate to the higher administration, right? So I wonder if my colleagues who are on graduate admissions committees, you know, I'm just on graduate committees, but you know, that seems to me like a really tough concern for the applicant, right? You know, how do you how do you take into stock that potential re rejection argument? You know, if this is a, a you know an otherwise viable student whose statistic we can't display for our benefit seven years down the road, do we actually admit them? I think you convince the administration that the placement statistic still counts if they're not in academia. So that, I mean, that's a huge one. But I yeah. mean, we're University of like California it. already does it. So yeah. I mean, they're miles. But I think in answering your question, and this isn't being disingenuous, I would say in your application that you're excited to be able to teach what you know to other students. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. you're interested in teaching, and that's not to say that you're uh, in tipping your hand and saying, I want to be an academic. But when you're um, thinking about teaching uh, people what you know based on your experience as a a person running a nonprofit and what you know why is religion relevant why should we care about this subject you have a lot of experience upon which to base that and that would come across in your your application your recommendation letters are also going to be your recommenders are going to be saying something about what your career options are so the admissions committee is going to know from your from that so you need to think about that when you write your own application to say what you do is educational uh, in, in the way that you contribute uh, to a public understanding of religion. Um, mm -hmm. But so that's all valued. I mean, you don't have to use the word tenure track academic career anywhere because that would be false. And, and you know, again, it would be inconsistent with what your letter writers are saying. Mm -hmm. But just think about the word teaching in a more global sense. Yeah, and I think that you would find there are places who would welcome you. You're bringing a lot of value into the classroom that people who say come straight up through, I mean, I did a BA and MDiv and a PhD and was done by the time many of my peers had 
had work experience and I'd had none. I mean, so there were major disadvantages to the way I did things. And there are huge advantages, especially given the context we've all described to your career experience and to find a place where, you know, that's valued and you can get more skills um, in addition to like the traditional, you know, graduate research and writing. I look for those places where there's value added for you because you're definitely bringing a lot of value to the program you're in. Yeah. And I mean, I would like to talk to you further. Hi, I'm Jennifer Daly. I'm a PhD student at Andrews University mm -hmm. doing religion, but I'm also a faculty teaching economics. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've changed careers. And one of my challenges is that I keep, when I keep, on the, on the occasions that I seek employment or I try to start to seek employment, I'm always being pigeonholed in, back into economics, mm. which I don't necessarily want to do. Uh, in fact, I'd rather teach on the other side if I'm going to be teaching. But you speak of the, the challenges with, with tenor track positions now, we, we, you know, and we experience that. My question is, have you can you respond to places options other than nonprofits that would want to employ a phd religion um so here's what i'm here's what i would ideally like to do in, in my ideal world i would like to engage none uh, I would like to teach in a broad sense, whether not necessarily classroom teaching, as you as you touched on, but not necessarily religion in a seminary or a college. But I'd like to teach religion to to people who are not necessarily interested in religion. So I'd like to perhaps teach religion to the to the economists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What has have you had any uh, encounter with hmm. uh, that kind of a, a synergy, that kind of a connection, that kind of a correlation, where people other than mm -hmm. colleges and so on, other than nonprofits, would want a a PhD religion? That's interesting. Yeah, you have a great uh, combination of fields there, a great combination of specialized knowledge, and I would think that <clears throat> think tanks and um, funding foundations, you know, that are looking for uh, people who can um, talk about trends and, mm. um, you know, in order for them to more uh, mm. uh, accurately target what their funding uh, op um, funding priorities are. Uh, so working for Ford or uh, MacArthur or, um, you know, any of the think tanks in Washington, I think would use that, but also, um, you know, uh, more close to home, perhaps community organizations Absolutely. where you're living that are cultural organizations, uh, heritage foundations, um, uh, the Humanities Council. Um, you're bringing a skill as an economist to humanities and uh, human humanists don't like to think in, in terms of percentages and numbers. And um, But if you could, you know, uh, convince humanists how important it is to have that perspective, uh, that would be great. So I think like a humanities council in your state uh, would be a, a good place as well um, 
as, as I mentioned, the other uh, things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thought, and uh, again, it sounds really cool. It sounds right. like there are actually a lot of possibilities conceivably. Um, the first thing I thought uh, were civic associations, voluntary associations, and possibly, and I, I don't want to presume anything about your social political orientation, but thinking about particular um, sort, sort of umbrella network civic associations mm -hmm. like Texas Interfaith or the East Brooklyn congregations and places like this who have an invested interest in channeling mm -hmm. citizens, both religious and otherwise, into the political process mm -hmm. and could use the savvy analysis and mm -hmm. the religious knowledge of somebody with a, you know, a future dual PhD like you. And the other possibility, thinking about a different way, think tanks for sure, but thinking about different ways of plugging into the world of policy and that whole conversation mm -hmm. is to hook up with NGOs if that's possible, you know, to think beyond the local level and think about having those kinds of conversations. That presumes a lot of access to those kinds of networks, and I wouldn't necessarily know how to go about that, although one of my best friends from graduate school works at the State Department in the CPE program, you know, and with that brings much madness in the Trump administration. But, you know, there are all kinds of institutional possibilities, it strikes me, because I think I mean, your skill set is going to be like really, really unique. Right. You know? yeah, I would just add, um, I work in a center that does health law policy, so I often jump straight to health with questions like this, but issues of global health and global development, right. yeah. um, your knowledge of economics combined with religious studies knowledge and religious literacy and cultural literacy could be really valuable in those spaces. So maybe thinking about um, places where they need some sensitivity to economics and knowledge of it, but also need that cultural and religious literacy. Um, so it's not a straight track, but it pulls together different skills that you have. Um, and I'm sure there are public health and development organizations um, within the United States as well. And uh, finally, outside the world of obvious good in the world that everyone's mentioned, um, the other thing is that uh, large businesses need someone to help them understand how to work together. And so workplace diversity training, we've had um, like Coca-Cola call and say, could you send a faculty member over and in 45 minutes tell us how to do this, these things that would take, you know, semesters of work in the classroom to accomplish. But there may be some organization out there that you could, you know, plug into that's training people in businesses and there your skills as an economist might make you more accessible than I would be to them. So that's, that's an interesting, interesting thought. Does such an organization exist? And if such an organization doesn't exist, that's a you know, purportedly very rich possibility to bring a lot of different people together. I have a friend with a degree. Um, she focused in environmental ethics, but sent a, spent a semester at the um, Emory Business School teaching business ethics. Mm. So. That's mm -hmm. another thing. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, and uh, I mean, hospitals and pharmaceutical yeah. companies, they have right. emphasis that oftentimes come from religion background. Mm -hmm. and, uh, if that's a new, they are going to Let's start up. Let's restart up. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> We've got the idea. Yeah. So we're closing in on 4.30. I want to be mindful of everyone's time. Do we have any questions, comments, or remarks for the good of the order before we wrap up? Yeah, thank, well, you. thank you. Thank Chrissy. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you to thank all of our you. panelists for joining us. Um, I, I do not want to undervalue the willingness of faculty members to come out and have this conversation. I really appreciate you joining us today. And again, especially Kathleen, yeah. who <laughs> went above and beyond with right. her broken arm. So thank you hey, so much. Yeah, I gave an arm pleasure. for this. Yeah. <laughs>